Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 60 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Pete Hodgson. Good morning from Alamo Square. Andrew Madsen. Hi from Salt Lake City. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. That's Marcus Zara. Good morning, everyone. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Certainly. Uh, my name is Marcus Zara. I've been working with Core Data since its inception, uh, which is way back in uh, OS X 10.3, uh, back when it was in beta. I've written a book on the subject for the Pragmatic Programmers. A uh, second edition of it came out about a year and a half ago. And I've been consulting, advising on it, teaching at conferences, teaching at colleges, pretty much you name it when it comes to core data. Been helping a lot of developers out over the years uh, working with this API. Uh, in addition to that, uh, I also am a managing partner at MartianCraft, one of the larger Mac iOS development uh, shops here in the United States. Awesome. Now, it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of a large side project, don't you think? Indeed, it is. It takes up quite a bit of my time, unfortunately. So I'm going to jump in here and just apologize to everybody. We got about a half hour into the show and then realized that somebody forgot to hit the record button. So we apologize for that, and hopefully we'll sound as smart the second time through. So I think we should all switch roles. There we go. <laughs> we, we just we said, no, I'm a core data expert, so <laughs> ask me questions. Uh, I know that you listened to the Saul Mora episode that we did. Is there a good jumping off point from there that you can think of? or By this point in time, I mean, core data has been around for many, many years. Uh, we've been using it since iOS 3. We've been using it on the Mac since before most people had a Mac at this point in time, considering the huge growth spurt we had at iOS. So, you know, core data is a fairly well-known API. I hesitate to use the word popular because a lot of people tend to blame it for things, but it is, it's extremely well used. So, you know, the jumping off point at this point probably is looking at what Apple announced for coming out later this fall uh, in iOS 8 and the new macOS 10 Yosemite. They mentioned a couple of new APIs, which are interesting and worth talking about, but they also, they made a statement during the talk that, to me, uh, pretty much had me standing up and cheering. They gave us a a definitive answer when it comes to threading with core data. And while not the first time that they've done that, but this is the first time that they've really said, stop doing X, we want you to do Y. To explain that, it's probably helpful to go back to the beginning. When core data first came out, there was no explanation about threading. There was no rules about it. We had to kind of figure them out on our own. So, you know, we took, you know, we'd walk through a, through a minefield that was very densely packed and, you know, things would explode at us. So, in the beginning, threading was very, very difficult, and pretty much the general rule is you don't know how to do it, you're going to screw it up, don't do it. Um, a, little, a little bit later, the, the APIs got refined, it got a little easier, and we started saying, okay, this is how you do threading. There, there became this rule, this mantra that uh, I've been preaching myself is one context, one thread. If you're, 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 a context can't jump threads. Uh, if you're in a multi-threading environment, you have to have mul- one context for every single thread in your application. Um, and that was still hard because threading is hard. Most people just can't wrap their head around threading. They can't visualize thread barriers and things like that. It's a very hard concept. So back in iOS 5, Apple came out and said, okay, we're giving you a better way. We now have blocks. 
blocks make threading easier because blocks are very easy to, to conceptually visualize as opposed to threads, which are invisible. So with blocks, we now give you this new API with Core Data to make it easier to work with blocks. And now we have three different ways to work with Core Data. We have your main thread, your or what I like to call your UI thread, and context. And you can, you can define it saying this context is for the main thread. And then we have another one, which is a private thread. And that one's, that one's kind of fun. It's like, okay, I'm going to define this one, but I can't touch this thread. I have to call it through this blocks API, which is fine. Very easy to understand. But they also left in the original design, which they now call thread confined, which is back to that old rule of one context, one thread. And I said, there you go. Now you have definition of your threading model. Go on, go forth and, and be happy. People were still screwing it up because they used that thread confined one and they would still have the problems with the threading. And at WWDC this year, they finally got up on stage and said, we're now changing that rule. We're making it even more defined. That thread confined context is going away. And it was a very definitive, and to me, a very powerful statement of saying, stop using this. Some people got it right. Some people got it wrong, but just stop. You don't need it anymore. We don't want you to use it anymore. And in fact, at some point in time in the future, this is probably going to get deprecated. So we now have that a very defined statement from the Cordata team going, this is how we want you to use our API. Stop breaking it. Stop making us cry, um, which was nice because before and then it was, you could get away with a lot. You could say, well, I'm using a context on multiple threads because I'm locking correctly and I know what I'm doing. And there and people wrote this really unmaintainable mess and they, they succeeded in write in writing what I call write only code surrounding core data by doing all this, this locking and this threading complexity and stuff like that. So that to me was probably the, the greatest thing that came out of that session was them saying, stop, just stop. You don't know what you're doing. You're screwing it up. Stop doing this. Only use Main context, private context. That's it. No more. No more else. No, they stop using the other stuff. Um, and they're actually writing APIs to that point where you can't do it. So it, they're actually supporting that statement in the actual API itself. So that, to me, I think that's probably the you know the long winded of saying that's where we should start is that we now have a very clear guideline going forward on how the threading model with Core Data should work. So when we're actually creating our application, what are the differences between the different approaches, kind of the old way and the new way? In the old way, you created your context, and generally people would only have one because that's what the template had, and they didn't understand core data enough to fully grasp the concept, so they'd have one, they'd pass it all around. And if you're not using threading at all, that worked perfectly. You had no problems at all. But then you're like, oh, this process over here is slow. I'm going to add threads to make it faster, right? Because threading makes things faster. They would get into trouble with it. And I was like, oh, what, what happened? You know, my database is corrupted or all of a sudden I'm locking across threads or, you know, and they, they just wouldn't understand what was going on. So that was the old way of things. And then they had a very harsh lesson on, how, you know, threading is a wonderful tool, but it is also a very, very sharp tool and it doesn't have a handle. The newer model, which is telling the context, this is what you are going to be, it got rid of that ambiguity. So if you said, I'm defining you as a main thread context, and then if you try to use it on another thread, the application would crash. And it would be very, you know, 
very sharp edge, saying, you are doing this wrong. Um, that's the way they introduced it in iOS 5. They've since pulled back from that a bit. It doesn't crash anymore. Um, you now have to turn on a debug flag to get the crash back, mainly mainly because when they turned that on, a lot of apps crashed. I mean, a lot. Like, very, very high percentage of the app store stopped working. So they had to pull back from that that sharp edge, and they, they had to put you know bubble wrap around it. But we now have that definition of saying, okay, I can turn on this flag and make sure I'm doing it right. So I've got this context that says I'm going to be on the UI thread only. I'm only for the purpose of the UI. And the context would now say, okay, this is the way you're going to work with me. And if you need to work with me from another thread, here's how you do it. So now we have a very defined way to do that. Uh, they also introduced the private queue context, which is just the exact opposite, is that you can't use it on any thread at all. There's, there's no thread that you have access to that you can access that context directly. You must access it through a block. You must create a block saying, this is what I want to do with this core data stuff, and then hand that block through a method called perform block. So you couldn't actually touch that context at all without it blowing up. And it forced you to say, okay, here is my self-contained little bit of code, hand it off, go forth and do this, and then it would come back. So that's the direction they're heading, and they're, they're keeping you away from the threading, but still allowing you to say, go do this in the background. Something you said earlier raised a question in my mind, and you said they're actually kind of going in with this new, I guess you'd call it sort of deprecation of the old thread confinement model with new API. Can you talk about some of those new APIs that really sort of require this, this new private queue, main queue sort of model? Yes. One of them that they introduced, which a lot of people were cheering about, and it kind of made me giggle, is a new batch updating. So the history behind that is a, a fairly famous developer, Brent Simmons, several years ago wrote a blog post about why he had to walk away from Cordata uh, in his application at the time called Net Newswire. And it's a common story. Well, common to me because I always hear all the, the bad things about Cordata because they, you know, they call me when they think it sucks. And a common philosophy of Cordata is thinking that it's a database. And a mantra that, like I said earlier, I should tattoo on my forehead is Cordata is not a database. Cordata is an object relation, an object model, an object hierarchy. And it can persist to disk, not required. And if you persist to disk, it can persist to a database. So there's two cans in there. That's the fact that it can persist to a, to a database structure is a secondary function of the API. It's not the primary purpose of it. And at first, it's like, well, it sounds like I'm splitting hairs, but I'm really not. You have to approach it in that direction of this is an object graph. So in Brent Simmons' case, he had a RSS reader, and he wanted the ability to go into a site and say, read all. And what that would do under the covers in the code is it would pull in all the articles for that site, flag them as red, which is a Boolean, and then save them back out to disk. Well, in a database world, that's very, very easy to do. No matter how many uh, articles are in that site, whether it be 10 or 10 million, it really didn't change much because the database could flip that bit very easily. Well, in an object graph, that's painful because it has to load in all those records, change literally one bit, and then write all those records back out again. So you're looking at you know 10 million records being pulled into memory, which is the problem he was running into. Uh, and of course, he, he wrote this blog post. It went viral for a few years. And to this day, people still cite that as the reason why they, they won't use Cordata, even though they'll never have 10 million records to begin with. The new API introduced in iOS 8 has finally solved that problem. But they solved it in a, a fairly raw or uh, a risky way. 
So you can now write code saying, I know I'm using SQLite at the back end. I know that this is going to be an expensive operation, so I want to do a batch update to all these records, and I want to change this property to this value, which is great. It works very, very fast. They did a test on stage where it showed that, you know, you can update a million records in, you know, less than, you know, less than a second, met with lots of cheers and applauds. But that API has a lot of very dangerous, very sharp edges, which I expect to uh, get a lot of phone calls about in the near future. In the fact that it is updating that record on disk. It is using the SQLite SQL APIs, it's doing a SQL call, and it's saying, update table, blah, blah, blah. It's not updating the object graph. So it's going underneath your object graph, it's changing the bits on disk, and that's it. That's all it's doing. It's not telling your object graph, hey, I've changed, you might want to go refresh. That's a exercise left up to the developer, which is how they were able to make it so fast, because they're not actually they're not actually doing the hard part. For you, they're, they're letting you do that. So this is kind of weird because I know I know the, the direction our conversation is going to take because we we just did this half an hour ago, but without recording it. So how would how would you mitigate that that problem? So if I want to use this new batch API, is the right thing to do if I'm Brett Simmons and I've got my NetNewsWire app and I want to update five bazillion records? Should I use the batch update thing? Should I use some other technique? What's the best option? There's two answers. My preferred answer, and the answer I, again, expect to be giving a lot in the near future, is it's, you know, the old joke with the doctor with, you know, my arm hurts when I do this. You know, don't do that. Um, <laughs> and my answer here is the same. Don't do that. Um, anytime that you're having to update 10 million records just to change a bit, you really are using a cannon to kill a mosquito. You want to design that differently. So my first answer is, you know, let's look at your object design and let's fix that. Secondarily, if you still have that problem or if you're already painted into that corner, then yes, we need to use the batch update. Let's be happy that it's now in there. But now we need to make sure that we refresh all the objects in memory. And what that means, you know, and as far as the application is concerned, is that if we've got any kind of view that is showing one of those objects, we need to tell that view, go refresh yourself. So that may be as simple as going into the every single managed object context and just saying reset, and then telling every table view to do a reload data, causing them to go back out to disk and grab the data. It can be just that easy, depending on how well our database, our application is designed. You know, but if our application is holding on to objects and we've got a lot of strong references, things like that, then we get into some more hairy code, and we may need to, you know, do a not- notification where everybody who's holding on to an article object will need to listen for that notification and refresh its object or something else that's equally ugly. So it it kind of goes to the application design. And which, you know, then leads back to the, you know, let's solve the root problem. Let's solve the problem where we're neat, where we're required to go into 10 million records and flip a single bit. So what are yeah. some better approaches for this? Yeah. I, was, I was saying, I was setting you up for that question so we could ask that question again, because it, it, <laughs> it, 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 it is a great question. As far as the famous one for Brent, there's not an easy answer for that one. However, the answer that I recommend on that one is that we have a higher order of that state. So the state, really the state, the state he's trying to change is for this website, you know, whether it be an Apple RSS feed or something, I want to say this site, everything from X date 
back. I don't care about it anymore. It's red. You know, I'm, I'm abandoning it. I failed. I could not keep up with the feed. So that's where we want to set that information. We want to set that information on that site object and say, you know, red date of X. So we can say for this Apple developer news RSS feed, I'm setting a, a, a red date to June 16th, 2014. And then when I'm fetching articles, if I'm fetching my red counts, I then change it around saying, you know, for this site, give me everything that's unread that is newer than June 16th, 2014. And you would actually, you would flip that around so the date calculation is being resolved first. And that gives us a higher order. So we don't, we only care about that bit as a secondary piece of information. The primary piece of information is, you know, when is the last red data for that site? And we can go further than that. We can do that on every site. So whenever a site gets to the state of having a red state of zero, we set that last red date. Now that will improve our fetch performances across the entire application. Because now, five years from now, when the user has 10 million articles in that developer news, we're not checking 10 million articles for that red bit. We're checking 10 million articles for their uh, their date, which is an index column, which is very, very fast. And then we're checking for that red, that red state later. Because that red state could be, we could end up adding you know, uh, additional states to that red, and it could become more complex. So we want to be able to roll that data up into the site. So here's okay. another another example of the same thing, right? Of like, don't if that's a hard problem to solve. Maybe don't solve the problem that way, or mod- model the problem a different way, so that the solution is easy. Yeah, it's it's a denormalization, which is you know the the database guys that are probably listening to this are probably crying, but. Core data is not a database. Again, I, I will say that a lot. And we actually want to denormalize the data as much as possible. Yeah. So we want to, you know, if, if, a, if it's a calculated field, we don't want to have to calculate that every time because it's an object. So we want to store that calculation in the database. Same thing with, you know, the last red flags and things like that. We want to store that data. We don't want to have to calculate that data. So we're denormalizing a significant amount. Let's say I've made the wrong decision. Past me was stupid and decided that they were going to calculate this thing every time and now present me has seen the light and realized that I should just denormalize it and just save the result to the database. That means, you know, if I've got already got 10 bazillion records, I need to migrate all of those existing records. So what am I, what's the approaches there in core data land? If we're dealing with this pre-iOS 8, which is where we're at today, the migration itself the changing of the database itself, let's let's start there. So, you know, I woke up one day going, okay, calculating my invoices every single time is an expensive operation and really painted me into a corner. So I'm going to change my invoicing application so that the total for the invoice is stored. So first of all, I need to change my database. So in core data, what that means is I create a new model that's based on the old model, and I'm going to change, I'm going to add this one property to the invoice saying total. That creates a migration situation inside of core data. Now, there are two different ways, actually three. Third one doesn't count, but I'll explain it in a minute. There's two primary ways to do a migration in core data. One's called heavy, one's called light. And the names should give you a hint as to which one you want to use. So a heavyweight migration is the original migration strategy that uh, they added in Lion, which is core data would say, I need to do a migration, so I've got my old store my old SQLite file, and I'm going to create a new SQLite file that's based on my new model. And then I'm going to walk through that old store. I'm going to grab each object, pull it into memory. 
I'm going to create a new object in the new store in memory. I'm going to copy the data over, and then I'm going to save it back out to disk. Worse, I'm going to do this in three passes. The first pass is object creation, copy properties. Second pass is set, set up all the relationships between my tables. Third pass is I'm actually going to run all the validation rules. So it's actually keeping the entire store in memory the entire time. If that sounds expensive, you're right. Um, that's horribly expensive. Um, that's why they call it heavyweight, right? That's why they call it heavyweight. It's so expensive that it's extraordinarily rare that it'll even work on iOS. Most of the time, you'll pop memory on iOS. So they came up with a new one, also pretty much at the same time back in Lion, and it's called Lightweight Migration. What that one is, is that Core Data says, I've got two different SQLite file designs, and I'm going to compare them and go, oh, you're just adding one property. Well, I can do that. And it's going to go down onto the disk, down in the SQLite API, and say, you know, modify table, and then it's going to set that new co- that new property to a default value. So now we can actually change it on disk, and that's very, very fast. It's usually, you know, a few milliseconds. It's not human perceivable when it's done right. And that's a lightweight migration, which is, it's great, it's wonderful, um, everybody likes it. The problem is, is that it doesn't do any mathematical calculations, which is what the heavy could do. Because the heavy, you could actually inject code into that migration process, and you could do logical decisions going, well, while you've got this object in memory, please calculate the invoice value and stick it in this new property over here. Or if you were splitting one table into two tables, or, or there were a lot of different things you could do. Matter of fact, it was pretty much wide open. You could manipulate the database anytime you wanted, because you had the whole freaking thing in memory anyway, so why not? The new one, you can't do any of that. It's, you know, I'm adding a column, I'm adding a table, I'm removing a column, I'm removing a table. It's that kind of stuff. It's very, very clever as far as how much of a database change you can make, but it won't change the data other than deleting columns, deleting tables. That leads into the problem then, okay, how do I get that calculation into that column? You could load everything into memory and force calculate all of those invoices and save them back out. But then you're going to run right back into your memory problem, your performance problem, and you're just going to say, you know, I like this app, but that 10-minute spinner on launch kind of sucks. So how else do you solve that? And the answer to that is doing a lazy calculation on that. So during the life cycle of an object, they're called NS-managed objects. During their life cycle, they have certain methods that get called on them. One of those is called awake from fetch. And it does exactly what it sounds. When you retrieve that data from disk and you realize the object and the object becomes into memory and the, and the values are, are populated, awake from fetch gets called. That's a perfect opportunity for us to do that calculation. So we can go in and say, oh, I'm an invoice. Let me check my total. Is my total nil as opposed to zero? We can make it an optional and say, okay, it is nil. So therefore, since it is nil, I'm going to do this calculation. I'm going to now set that property on launch. And now we've got a lazy loading of that total property, and we're no longer calculating it on every launch. Okay, so at the time you actually use the object, you can verify that, oh, this has not been set, run your logic, set it, and go on your way. Exactly. So what we can do there is we can actually do a couple of passes. There's, there's clever and interesting things that we can do in our application depending on our business needs and our business logic. For instance, we could let that go for a little while, and then in our next version, 
we can modify the database again and say, okay, that column is no longer optional. And now I've got data protection now that I've completed this two-step migration. And we can go even further saying, okay, this is the 15th time you've run the application since the last migration. I'm going to, in a background process, I'm going to go grab all those invoices that you've never touched, which are probably old and you don't care about anymore, and I'm going to go ahead and force calculate those now and get it over with. That's something else that can be done afterwards, but you're allowing the application to manipulate that data in a way that's not affecting the user, not impacting the user by doing those kind of clever things. One concern I have with kind of doing the batch updates is if you're doing you know something with like SQL, like you don't really have any transaction support. So if something happens, your app gets killed or crashes, you're kind of out of luck. But this sounds like a way that you can kind of work around it and you update what you update. And if it doesn't get updated, you can just do it again. A lot of the designs that I come up with when it comes to solving problems, I do think think about it from that direction of I want to make sure that if it's not atomic, which nothing with a persistent store is truly ever atomic, I want to make sure that it's repeatable and it's recoverable. Um, Same thing when I'm importing data, if I'm pulling data in from, from the server, I always want to make sure that it never gets into a state where I'm, I'm hosed. I always, I can always have a recoverable state and I can always make sure that if the user force quits it or the battery dies or the connection drops or, you know, any of the other thousand things that are, are fun problems for us now that we're in the mobile space, that we can recover from those gracefully so that we don't get those one-star reviews going, I ran out of battery and now I've lost all my work, which is a very real problem that you see. Yeah, that's a really scary thing about things like, not things like core data as a, as a, as a technology, but basically persistent state is the chance that you can screw something up and just someone's app is permanently hosed. Like yes. it's just, you know, it'll crash on start and it will always crash on start forever the end. Just delete and reinstall. Yeah. That is the stuff of nightmares for someone like myself who's, you know, I'm the one who gets called going, my application crashes on launch and everybody's data is gone. What do I do? You know, that's the stuff that just kind of makes me cry. And it's 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 a very, very real problem if you don't think about it at the beginning. And it's part of what I, some of the things that I try to teach when I'm at conferences and colleges is core data is very much the back of the cabinet. And I, I am stealing that quote from Steve Jobs. People don't think about it. People don't really care about it. The only person who ever cares about the back of the cabinet is the developer, hopefully, but not always, or someone like myself who's coming in afterwards when the application's on version three and now they've, they're in this really, really bad spot. So ideally, the developer, the designer of the application, he should be looking at that back of the cabinet and giving it equal, if not more importance than the front of the cabinet. You know, people can forgive a UI glitch of going, you know, this button is off by two pixels. It's ugly, but the button's still there. When you say, I'm sorry, your thesis is gone, people aren't too <laughs> terribly forgiving for that. So even though it's not visible, even though people don't go, oh, yeah, they added the cord out of my app. It's so much better. You never hear that. It's, to me, and from my perspective, it's it's far, far more important to the, the happiness of the user to make sure that we get that back in just absolutely bulletproof as far or as close to bulletproof as we possibly can get and we never get into the state of permanent unrecoverable data so one of the scary things when i think about this and we you know we we were talking about migrations and how to take someone from version one through to version four when you're testing your app or you're testing some change to your app you're probably testing against 
a new version of, of the data that hasn't been migrated all the way through from version one. Are there any tools or tricks or something out there f- for someone who wants to make sure that not only is the new version of their app going to work with old versions of the operating system, but also is it going to work with version three of your app that was migrated up from version one where the data model was totally different? Yes, you can. There's a couple different ways to do that. My first recommendation to people always is keep a copy of every database, every version of the database. So if you've got version one, two, three, four, five, you've got five different versions of it, you should at a minimum have five databases, one for each one of those versions. You keep them in your as part of your project, as part of your test plan. And then you, you know, inject each one of those into the application before launch and make sure that it migrates properly to the latest version. So that's, you know, that's step one. That's, that should be fairly obvious. Step two is customer support. Whenever you get a customer saying, my database is hosed, it's broken, it doesn't work, it's really slow, anything, any excuse you can to get a copy of a user's database, do it. And then hang on to those suckers. Every one of those is gold because now you've got a potential problem database and you can use that as part of your testing cycle. So you say, you know, here's Mary Jane's database where she's, as Brent Simmons, uh, one of his famous examples of, she has every RSS feed on the planet and every article on the planet and they're all marked as red or, or as unread. So I now have, <laughs> you, you laugh, but this actually, that's, it's actually based on a true story. And I'm going to use that as my, te- as one of my tests. And you just, you kind of, you build up, you know, this uh, collection of strings and you hang on to all these guys and you test them on, you build tests for them. So, you know, the testing framework inside of Xcode is more than sufficient to be able to build up these tests. And they're really super simple. You know, you have a stand up, a startup method that says, build me a context based on model X. And then you, you build up on that and you say, okay, now I'm going to hand it this database file from version one or I'm on version three. What happens? Does it migrate properly, pass, fail? And you build, you build those up. Every time you do a, a new version model for production, you add another test to the top layer of that. So that you say, now I've got version five. So I'm now going to test version one, two, three, four against five and make sure that each one of them stand up. Each one of them migrates properly and make sure these tests are repeatable. That's the bare minimum. Doing that will guarantee or get close to guaranteeing that your users are not going to have a migration problem. Secondarily to that is having a fallback plan. So the user has something bizarre that I didn't expect. What do I do? The common answer is do nothing and just take the hit for the the app star review. But there are alternatives. And this also goes back to the third option for migrating as well, is for each version of your database, each version of your data model, write an export routine for it. And the export routines are actually very, very simple. There's there's a, a baseline for it that I posted on Stack Overflow a few years ago. And the idea is walk through your data model and export it out to JSON, the whole data model. No matter what version of the database you're on, just write export it out to JSON. This is useful in a few different areas. One, it's useful if you ever need to push to a server or push to another a non-Apple device because JSON is a format that everybody recognizes. Number two is it's really useful for migrations. So if you're in a situation where version one was stupid simple, version five is super complex, and there is no migration path for that because going from version one to version five just doesn't work. So when it doesn't work, you just throw it out to JSON and then consume it. Consume that old JSON back into version five. You know, make sure that the latest code base can handle every version of that JSON, which is not hard. 
because if the JSON doesn't know the field, doesn't have the field, you move on. You set it to a default value and continue. So you can do that kind of a migration path. So that's your fallback for migrations. It's also your fallback for the database doesn't want to migrate properly. So you've got a user on version 3. There's something funky with there. They've got Arabic characters. You didn't expect Arabic, whatever. Export that sucker out to JSON. JSON is perfectly happy. Try to export it into 5. If it still fails, now you have a really nice format that they can send to you, and you can look at it and fix it and send it back. But most of the time, it's going to work because now you're dealing with just JSON and now you can just suck it in. You're not dealing with an opaque format. You're dealing with a transparent format. And you can write import routines that are fairly simple for that. It's a little bit of effort to do at the beginning and then it pays off in huge dividends as your application matures because now you've got this other format that you can do all kinds of wonderful things with. That's a really neat solution. It's a belt and suspenders approach to persistence, which if you're dealing with people's data with things that are potentially unrecoverable, you should be looking at a belt and suspenders and tailor and anything else to make sure that everything's <laughs> already fed. It's the one thing, I mean, I don't know how many people remember, but remember iOS 5 when, I, when iCloud came out and the stories of I had all of my grades for all of my schools, for all of my students in numbers on iPad, and now it's gone. Not, I had to recover it, I had to pull back. No, it was gone, deleted, completely unrecoverable. You know, I didn't back up, you know, blame the user, fine, but you just lost their livelihood. Um, and that was Apple that did that. That was Apple's mistake. So, you know, if Apple can make this mistake, I guarantee you everybody else can too. This should be the stuff of nightmares, and we should be trying to make sure that it's bulletproof in a ridiculous number of ways. Yeah, I'm, I'm bummed we don't have time to talk about iCloud, maybe not in detail, but about the intersection of core data and iCloud, because I think that would be interesting to talk about, but maybe we'll have to get you back on to do another show. Certainly. There's, uh, there, there's a lot to discuss in that arena, and it's, it's an interesting subject. I actually don't know if we've done any episodes on, on iCloud. I don't think we have. Yeah, that's kind of surprising. Yeah, the dark arts. Yeah. It's, well, it, we, we need to do mobile me, too. <laughs> Go all the way back to toolkit. <laughs> so I, I, I will, you know, instead of leaving the, the listeners in the dark, Apple is not good at networking, which is kind of hilarious because they have some of the smartest people on the planet working for them. But for some reason, when it comes to networking, it just, no matter what it is, yeah. There's this blind eye to it, and it's it's really, really bizarre. I don't know if it's because they have really good network connections at their campus or what it is, but... I think it's not just networking. I think it's just server-side stuff in general. Like, if you think about all of the iCloud stuff, also, you know, that crazy outage for iTunes Connect for, like, multiple... How long was that? That was, like, weeks. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. that's pretty awful downtime, right? Like, most other companies would be pretty ashamed i guess maybe apple were ashamed as well but i'm i'm sure i'm sure they were but it's you know this is a repeatable experience it was it was kind of funny the you go back to the very beginning days when mobile me was announced after toolkit a lot of us went like okay great they finally fixed it and then iCloud came out and we're like, oh, hey, they finally fixed it. You know, and now, you know, version seven came out and they're like, no, 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 we really fixed it this time. We promise. Mm -hmm. And all of us are like, yeah, no, I don't, I just don't believe you anymore. 
And they and they do this thing of like when they announce the new one, we're like, yeah, we know the old one was kind of crappy. Ha ha ha! It's better now. Like, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah but maybe. it's it's not networking per se. It's the cloud services that they struggle yeah, mightily with. It's just backend stuff. Like, like uh, looking at the stuff in the keynote from uh, WWDC, you know, where they have the the iPhone and you can make calls from your computer through your iPhone and stuff like that. I mean, they, they really get some of that integration stuff down, and they get it down really well. But, yeah, anything that has to connect to a cloud service, it's hard. I think the problem is they're trying to do all their back-end coding in Objective-C, so I think that's where Swift came from. <laughs> <laughs> could be part of it. Don't, don't, don't say that. That'll make me cry. I'd love uh, to know what uh, all of the backends for iCloud is, is implemented in. Well, you know, uh, web objects is uh, all Java now, so... Yeah. You never know. That's even worse, right? I mean, well, maybe not worse, but well, it it could be the you know the whole thing with like garbage collection. You know, when when they came out with garbage collection for Objective C, everybody immediately poo pooed on it. And honestly, if they had called it anything else, if they had called it you know fairies and rainbows, they probably would have got a better reception for it. Just because they called it garbage collection instead of you know automatic reference counting, which is what we have now. You know, they could have called it anything else and people probably would have had a bigger shot at it. But it's it's one of those things of, you know, Java burned us hard on garbage collection. And to this day, it's still there. You know, you operate a Java server and it still stops the universe while it does its garbage collection calculations. You know, it's better. You know, we don't have the five-minute pauses that we used to have in the 100% CPU spikes. I used to write server Java back in the day. But it's still there. There's still that, ooh, what's that spike? Oh, garbage collection. Yeah, it'll go away in a second. So whenever you hear the words garbage collection, you know, it sends chills down people's spine for that reason. That's, you know, that's why when ARC came out, everybody's like, oh, I'll try ARC. I'll never try garbage collection, but I'll try ARC. There really isn't, I mean, technology-wise, there's a lot underneath it. But as far as the developer's concerned, there's really not much difference. You're still yeah. trusting the system to do it for you. It's slightly less magical, right? You still need to understand the weirdness of blocks and the abstraction leaks somewhat, whereas garbage collection, at least, the abstraction leaks from a, uh operational point of view, like you're saying, like these kind of memory spikes and stop the world sweeps but at least as a developer it is pretty much magic right like as opposed to i don't know i'm i I think arc is is an amazing technological accomplishment but it it makes me a little bit sad that you still have to understand how it works in order to not screw it up Mm. kind of like the core data thing right like you need to know that the batch update is doing this extra stuff behind the you know there's some sharp edges there i guess as well yes Call it having a gray beard. Call it having you know having a lot of scars. What, you know, whatever you may call it. I like those sharp edges. I'm of the of probably a very antiquated opinion of you know coding should be hard. You know, it's right up there with you know brain surgery should be hard. Um, I really don't want everybody doing brain surgery, and I really don't want everybody doing writing code because we've been down that path. Uh, we would we went down that path with Visual Basic, and it didn't turn out well. And I don't think that's a path we should go down again. It's, you know, this should take, I, I hesitate to use the word intelligence, but that's one word for it. But it also, it needs to take energy and devotion and dedication to the art and the craft of it. And every time we come back and say, okay, now it's easier, I kind of cringe a little bit. Because every time we lower that barrier, we get a little bit more of not good coming into the space. 
And I know why, you know, the business reasons behind it, they make sense. You know, there's a real, there's a real brain drain problem in the, in the Bay Area these days. I get all that. But every time you lower your standards, you're lowering your standards. So it's, it becomes, a, it becomes a real problem. I think for me, the goal is not to like lower that level. So, you know, any, anyone can go in there and kind of make a mess of things. But I do think there's a lot of value in, flattening the learning curve right like eventually you need to get up to that that level of really understanding the craft but if we can make it so that you don't keep on having to slam your head against a wall in order to get there then i think people can get up that slope faster i I totally agree i don't i don't want a bunch of people that don't understand any of the fundamentals of what they're doing to be writing apps for me because i don't want to have my apps crashing all the time but i I do think like things like swift i think are a great example of just removing accidental complexity rather than so that we can focus on the fundamental complexity of building software yes and striking that balance is the hard part yeah Um, you know how do we make it a gentle curve but not too gentle and we, we, we've definitely, you know, when I say we, I talk about you know, all developers. We've gone to the too gentle way before where, look, you can just draw you know, widgets on the screen and it'll work to, oh, you actually have to write this in binary. So striking that balance is definitely the challenge. The question, as with any new language coming out, is, you know, did we get the balance right? Did we make this better or did we make it worse? Yeah, we'll see. I'm, I'm really interested to see how Swift evolves over time. I, I, the thing that I was most encouraged by is Apple quite uh, explicitly saying, we are going to break language compatibility. Like, we're not going to do the Java thing of trying to always be backwards compatible from a language point of view. Yes. I think that's, that's cool because it, it sounds like they're preparing themselves for a few years of evolving a language based on how real people are using it rather than just kind of sticking to their guns and saying, nope, this is the way to do it. You guys, are, if you're not doing it this way, then you're doing it wrong. Yes, that's, it, that's definitely something that we can thank both Java and Microsoft for is that, you know, we now know where that goes. So them saying, yes, we're going to cut this cord, it was, was nice and it definitely offers some hope. Yeah. Well, I mean, Objective-C has got the same issues, right? C, C, C++, most languages have had that, have been shackled by this same thing of like, oh, we need to make it a subset or a super, no, yeah, a subset of the previous version of the language. So we're going to make the syntax ridiculous in order to achieve that. Yep. Oh, yeah. So we've got, we've, especially on the uh, OS X side, we've got some gnarly code in there. It's like, why do you, oh, because we have to talk to Carbon and all this other stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, and Apple did the same thing with with iOS when they first came out with it. They're like, this is, you know, this is, you know, AppKit version two. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't look like AppKit version one at all. And we're going to call it UIKit so you make sure it's clear that this is not the same thing. So they did cut a lot of cords there as well. So they do have a history of that, which is kind of nice. Yeah the, yeah, the thing that frustrates me with trying to maintain backwards compatibility isn't the gymnastics that they go through in order to do it. It's usually when we get to the point where the technology we have has now outstripped the capability that we are trying to maintain with the backward compatibility. And in order to move forward in a meaningful way, we kind of have to cut that cord, and they don't. And and that that frustrates me because it's like we could have so much nicer things if we would just let go of that and this. Definitely. Then there's you know there's also the other side of the coin of people going, hey, we've let go of that. You never need to touch these things again, which we're seeing a lot of that now with Swift again, where a lot of the um, I would caution to say younger less experienced developers are going, hey, we don't ever have to touch pointers again. 
And, you know, kind of the old graybeards are looking at that going, yeah, we've been there before. We'll see. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, nobody, nobody's saying they're wrong, but everybody's kind of chuckling at them going, <laughs> I remember being that young. So we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see what the language looks like. I'm excited by it, but I'm cautionarily excited by it because, you know, I've been around for a while and I've, I've seen this before. And it was always a step forward, but it was always a step forward across broken glass. So <laughs> I like my analogies. All right. Well, uh, should we get into the picks? Certainly. All right. Jane, you want to start us with picks? Sure. So we don't have Ben today, so I'm going to do a beer pick. So I'm going to do a pick that from a company that's been around for a long time, a brewery, Abita, out of Louisiana. And this is one of the older craft breweries. And they were a brewery before that was craft beer was even a word. I think they used to call it microbrews. But this is something that I, when I lived in South Florida in the, in the 90s, craft beer, microbrewery, this wasn't really a word, but we can get one of their beers there, Purple Haze. And if you were 21 year old me, you drink anything named after a Jimi Hendrix song. So, so, but <laughs> since then, <laughs> since, since then, they've expanded quite a bit around. And, you know, looking at oh, Purple Haze, it's kind of a, a fruit wheat beer, which isn't really my favorite anymore. But I was in Florida a couple months ago and I saw some Abita and thought, hey, when in Rome, I'll try this again. So I tried their Amber, which is a Vienna lager, which is really a fantastic beer of the style, kind of a nice lager, a little bit of body to it, so very nice. And at 4.5 alcohol content, Pete, what is that? That's a session beer. A session beer. So if you want to just hang out and not get messed up after one or two, uh, have an Abita Amber. So very good. That's my pick. Very nice. Pete, what are your picks? As always, plus one. On James' pick, I really like a beta too. They have a really good... I think they have a Kolsch that's really good. Or a Kolsch-style beer. Anyway, my picks are nothing to do with what we've been talking about or beer. Actually, yeah, maybe I'll have a beer one at the end. So I, I watched this talk from a conference called InfoQ. Uh, oh, sorry, a conference called QCon. And uh, back, way back in 2009, I went to this talk by a guy called Kent Beck, who is an amazing amazingly smart guy just about how we build software. He's a very thoughtful kind of philosophical dude, one of the originators of XP, uh, extreme programming. And he did this talk called Responsive Design. It is nothing to do with responsive design like the UI thing of, you know, websites that will uh, respond to the size of the screen. Unfortunate naming collision there. He should have namespaced it with KB Responsive Design or something. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's a great, really, really great talk about how approaches to build to, to evolving this, the design of your software. So really, really interesting philosophical kind of take on how we get from the design we have today to the, the design we want in our software. So really cool talk. I really recommend watching it. Thinking about conferences made me think about the two things I like the most of conferences, and that's stickers and conference T-shirts. So those are two of my picks. I really like stickers, and I really like conference T-shirts. And my last pick, so I'm, I'm going to get even more uh, ridiculously esoteric on the beer stuff. I've now stopped picking beers, and I'm going to pick hops. So <laughs> my hop pick for this week is Galaxy Hops. They're this really crazy, they smell like passion fruit. I'm not kidding. If you, I, I, I brewed some beer this weekend, and I, and I used Galaxy Hops to brew the beer. But when I opened up the, the little bag that the hops come in, it smells like hops, but it actually full-on smells like tropical fruits, like passion fruits. So hopefully the beer will turn out well. So that's my last pick is uh, the Galaxy Varietal of uh, of Hops. Awesome. Andrew, what are your picks? 
got a couple picks today. So my first one is is a website called practicalswift.com. And I think there's been already in the last two weeks kind of an explosion of people trying to start websites for Swift. And But this one's a good one. It's a lot of just sort of practical tips, um, especially now that right now while we're in the early days of Swift. And I think it's kind of a fun time because there's not a lot of documentation for Swift and things are still changing and kind of buggy and everybody's new to it. That's a fun time to be involved in a new technology. And this website's just got cool stuff that you can't really learn about Swift anywhere else. And in particular, the latest post has a list of all of the built-in functions in Swift, like 90% of which are not documented at all. So that's practicalswift.com. My second pick is actually our guest Marcus's website, cocoismygirlfriend.com, C-I-M-G-F.com. And I don't know how long he's been doing this, quite a while. It's one of the blogs that I have been reading for a, a very long time and have learned a ton of stuff from. So it seems like, Marcus, you don't do really frequent posts, you guys, but the posts that are on there are excellent. And you can learn stuff no matter how long you've been doing Mac and iOS development. So Coco is my girlfriend. Those are my picks. Thank you. There's, a, there's actually, if I could interject for a second, there's actually a reason for the decrease in posts. And all honesty, that's because of Stack Overflow. We've actually kind of drawn a line of if I can ask or answer this in a Stack Overflow post, I'm going to do it because their search rankings are really nice and high and we can get hit a bigger audience. And if it's a more complex issue or nobody asked it yet, then we'll put it on Coco's My Girlfriend. So, you know, we're trying to take a little bit of a backseat because of the way Stack Overflow is designed and we really like it. Um, and then we just use uh, Coco's My Girlfriend to answer everything else. Well, I, I'm, I still find it really useful. So you've actually got the, your newest post about core data in Swift, and that was just a great intro. And then your talk about the sort of boilerplate code for core data in Swift, I, I really appreciated that post. So even so, check it out. Yeah, you know, girlfriends don't like to be neglected, especially if you're going over to a hotter, sleeker Stack <laughs> Overflow girlfriend and, and doing your stuff over there. So Yeah, now cue all the uh, bashing for us calling Coco's my girlfriend. <laughs> yep. All right, I've got a couple of picks. I finished the Steve Jobs biography finally last or this weekend. I know I picked it last week, but it, it was really good. So I'm going to pick it again. Uh, Marcus, what are your picks? Well, for the first one, I'm actually going to pick one of our own applications that's being developed by Martian Craft. Uh, it's an application I actually use quite a bit. We wrote it for ourselves, and then we shared it with everybody else, and it's called Slender. It's a Mac application designed by developers for developers. And what it does is it goes through your Xcode project, and it finds duplicates. It finds uh, dead assets. It finds bad assets, and it notifies you or fixes them. So it, what it does is it reduces your overall project size, and it reduces your overall application size, which on for iOS projects can be incredibly valuable. You know, after a three-month, six-month, 12-month development cycle, you may not realize you've got 15 copies of your icon in there, and they're all not exactly the same. Um, and it catches a lot of other things. It looks out for magical strings and, all, um, and other common issues and just helps make your application smaller, slimmer, faster, better. That's my first pick. My second one is a tool for core data programmers. It's been around almost as long as Core Data itself. It's called Mode Generator. It's written by a, a fantastic developer out of Chicago by the name of Wolf Rinschek. And what it does is it produces the object files for you. So it produces the subclasses of NS Manage Object. But it does it differently than Xcode does. So 
every time you do that export from Xcode, it'll erase your existing object files and replace them with new ones. And if you've got custom data in there or custom methods in there, they're gone. So Mode Generator solves the problem from a different direction as it actually creates two subclasses. And one's called a machine file, one's called a human file. So the machine file subclasses NS Manage Object, the human file subclasses the machine file. So whenever your data model changes, Mode Generator only updates the machine file and your human file, which has all your convenience methods and your other code in there, remains intact. So it's really, really useful as you're going through different iterations of your application when you're making modifications to your data model and you're really exercising core data to its fullest. It's it's a very good tool to have. It's a command line interface. Works great. I've been using it for years. I highly recommend it. And lastly, since uh, there's beer aficionados in here, I've got to throw out a non-beer. So I'm allergic to wheat. I can't imbibe wheat at all. So I become a bit of a cider snob. I thought it was a cider snob. Then I went to England, and then I really became a cider snob. And over here in San Francisco, we don't have a lot of choices. However, there's a relatively new one that's come out that's quite nice called Angry Orchard. They're making the rounds. They're getting more and more popular, and they've got different flavors. Uh, but they're probably the closest thing we have to a proper English cider that we have over here. So that would be my my third pick. Very nice. Well, thanks for coming, Marcus. We really appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to be here. It's, it's It was a very fun conversation. All right. If people want to know more about you or Martian Craft or any of the other things that you're working on, what what are the best ways to do that? Well, Martian Craft itself, you can go to our website, which is you know martiancraft.com. You can learn all about uh, what we're working on, the things we're developing. We do a lot of products as well as uh, third-party development. So there's quite a few products we have over there. Most of our products are for engineers. So if you're a Cocoa developer, you should take a look at our product line. We do have, you know, we write tools for ourselves and then we productize them afterwards. So there's a lot over there. Coco's My Girlfriend is also a great resource. We add things there as we come up with them. Sometimes we come up with code solutions that are interesting or unique, and we'll post them there. Um, and sometimes it's just code clarity going, oh, the Apple template's not that great. Here's a better version. Here's what we use instead of the Apple version, and things like that. We'll answer complex problems there that are beyond the simple problems that can be answered on Stack Overflow or inside of the Apple developer forums. So those are the two best ways. Um, I can also be reached on Twitter. First initial, last name, just M Zara. Tend to respond to Twitter fairly quickly. So if you have a question on Stack Overflow or somewhere else and you want me to take a look at it, ping me on Twitter and I generally respond there. Those are usually the best ways. You can send me email. I'll look at it. But my track record of replying to emails is not nearly as good as replying to things on Twitter. Well, thanks again. I guess we'll wrap the show up. I'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.